This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. We have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And the police is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of sex? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam. And I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have so much to believe and have such an ulterior motive for putting the position I'm in. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are very happy Today, this is a pretty big day for a subliminal jihad. I think. <laughs> um, yeah. I think let's try to, to not make it eight hours long. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's try to not spend an entire work day talking uh, uh-huh. about the uh-huh. subject. Uh, this is, you all right, know, all right. I can sense yeah. that you want to keep it. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, uh, like, obviously we tend to have long episodes, but I just have a sense, like, this is for you, like, a big subject, like, uh, you know, uh, something that you're, like, very invested in, you know, uh, yeah, so I feel that, is. like, you know, just putting it out there, but, uh, try not to have it be, you know, like, uh, 12 hours or whatever you know or like all right all right well i i epic. see that you found uh, I, yeah. I see that you found a place to make your stand but take it easy all right oh sorry yeah it's gonna be uh, fine mm-hmm. it's gonna be fine okay that's a quote actually yeah. uh that's a quote from our subject today yes, uh, this is mm-hmm. this is a band that we've brought up a number of times as you said probably mm-hmm. mostly due to my curious obsession in the last several years uh with this, yes. this American rock and roll I'm actually group. not, like, a big connoisseur of, or really, like, I didn't really know much about them at all, uh, and I hadn't, like, listened to them. Like, I couldn't have told you really before, like, a couple days ago that, like, you know, Take It Easy was by the Eagles, mm-hmm. or, like, you know, uh, Take It to the Limit. Like, if you asked me to sing that, I couldn't have, like, actually done so i knew like hotel california <laughs> you know that's like, of course it. yeah um, and uh yes that we are today we are talking about who else the eagles and <laughs> you know uh, yeah. i think no it's an interesting it's an interesting topic to cover because on the one hand given all the fringy topics we cover on this show maybe you know a new listener might come to like why the hell are you going to talk about the Eagles for four and a half hours? I'm just kidding, not four, uh, uh, but you know, for, for a couple hours. Uh, like, you say why you're are joking, you going to talk about the that Eagles? That seems like actually plausible. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, you know, I, I think it, it is something we brought up. It's something I've like tweeted about a lot over the past, periodically. I think over the last couple years, and uh, tweeted what 
felt like uh, some relatively hot takes about the Eagles because mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I've gone through periods of, I mean, unlike you, I grew up in California. So this is right. like a basic part of my ambient soundtrack growing up on the radio and like what my dad would listen to when I would drive around in the car with him. And it yeah. was just always there. And it, it's almost like you didn't even really consider the Eagles were just ubiquitous. Like it, it wasn't right. even a question of whether you liked them or not. They just were all over the place. And I think also when I was a kid, it was when they reunited in the 90s and had like this huge, like big tour. And at that point, I mean, they were always embodied to me. Like they were the ultimate like boomer dad rock band like yes. par excellence uh and because mm-hmm. even the way they like dressed and like looked in the 90s they just looked like yeah. people's oh, dads sure. basically yeah, yeah, yeah i uh you know i watched like a four-hour documentary about the eagles <laughs> in preparation for this i had a lot of like footage of them post reunion and like some of it was just like too boomery to even handle <laughs> like it was just like the boomeriest thing i've ever seen it was like, it really so was it really was it's kind of funny stuff. like their insistence in the early 90s like constantly kind of self-consciously joking about what old fogies they were when they were like in their late 40s and it's like mm-hmm. well okay guys like nowadays like a gen x rock band that was big in the 90s like they're all 50 and like running around like wearing the same clothes they used to wear and they, yeah. in some cases they probably look healthier because they all have hired like pilates instructors and they're all vegan now or something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. um but like they kind of like still had this older model of like old dudes can't rock or something like that like it it really they are so in the the eye of the storm of like the 60s culture and the rock and roll you could say counterculture that we covered at length in our Dave McGowan episodes uh, in Weird Scenes mm-hmm. Inside the Canyon. And really, like, the what's interesting about the Eagles in terms of, like, filling in, I don't know, our, our little historical dives is they kind of pick up where, like, chapter one of the Laurel Canyon music scene leaves off, like, in the post-Manson era and when all of these stars die at age 27 Mm -hmm. coincidentally um janice joplin Jimi hendrix uh, eventually jim morrison though maybe he faked his death and ran away uh you really can't tell but uh you know so and some of these some of the members of the eagles like popped up tangentially in that book become rush limbaugh right uh jim morrison is he's the oh yeah yeah he's rush limbaugh Uh, exactly well now he finally did die actually is dead yeah 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 they finally folks (laughs) folks we got him yeah yeah, yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but but you know, I think it's interesting to like dive into the Eagles because after you read, after you're fully like McGowan pilled about the '60s, maybe the impulse is to look at everything in the music industry as just deeply sus. Like it probably, especially if it's coming out of the same area with a lot of the same people the same scene basically is like the very sus LA scene. It's uh, it's kind of. Uh, yeah, it's like natural maybe to to be suspicious of a group like the Eagles, especially because, as people often forget, like they are probably, I think, hands down the most successful American rock and roll group that has ever existed. And they, mm-hmm. uh, I think, were responsible for the number one best-selling record of the 20th century, which was Eagles' Greatest Hits Volume 1, 1971 to 75, mm-hmm. yeah. which was released like without their knowledge like as a filler album before Hotel California, but ended up... I have a very like beat-up $1 clearance bin uh, vinyl uh, version of that record. And, I mean, there's pretty much like no skips on it. it it's, an, it's a pretty... You know, like, go you go listen to that album, and, I mean, they're just hitting you with, like, 
one track after another of like country rock, uh, ambivalent country rock perfection, I think. And I don't know why... I don't, I don't know why the Eagles started to like speak to me, but I think maybe it was after being in L.A. for a certain amount of time. Something clicked with me in like early 2019, like before the pandemic, where I started listening to Hotel California again, and it just started hitting differently. And I started noticing, I guess, what many people have, have noticed, a lot of people have speculated as to the sort of hidden meanings behind it. But I actually do think it probably is one of the best American rock and roll songs of the 20th century and i think it holds up even if it was like some kind of like a cult like revelation of the method psyop which i don't fully believe it is but i do think it has a culted meaning ingrained within it but in a very i think appropriate literary way um i don't know if you would go yeah. in that I mean, hard should, uh, like, as i just yeah, did, maybe but... discuss some of these rumors around you know because that was uh it was a focus on some of some sort of uh satanic panic uh attention the hotel California. it was you know, people said you could see yes. Anton LaVey on the cover mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. uh etc which like, they've always know. denied and I've never been mm-hmm. convinced that it, lo- it does look like somebody's there but I I've never been convinced and there's never been any other kind of association with them and the church of satan or those types of people though yeah. I think they probably interacted with some people who dabbled in, they I mean they definitely like hung out with people who dabbled in like the spookier shit uh, because that was the whole scene that they were involved in Um, but Mm -hmm. I think the song is uh, even though yeah they they get a little bit like shifty uh, Don Henley particularly uh, who is the for anybody who doesn't know because I didn't even realize for I grew up with the Eagles but I didn't realize like which which Eagles were who because Mm -hmm. it didn't even really occur to me like casually growing up that like there were like four to five singers in the band throughout their like one decade and that they all basically like different ones saying lead on different tracks which is kind of a unique kind of interesting thing about them uh they were also all like multi-instrumentalists and uh, you know it was only later where i realized okay that's don henley who was one of the, the very few drummer singers uh to drum his way to the top uh yeah you know this this golden age of rock and roll along with i guess like phil collins and the sus uh dave grawl i suppose but you know but to actually lead yes. your band like to lead a full band not just be a solo artist and be drumming it is not easy it is really hard no, yeah, i can't imagine how, uh, yeah, yeah i play a little bit of music but that's like so far beyond what i could ever imagine doing yeah it um, seems tough he seemed to be you know struggling a little bit in some of the later concert footage uh oh, definitely you know, in the 90s uh yeah yeah uh, they eventually went yeah. grateful dead and got like a second drummer who just like actually was drumming and and don yeah. henley could just like tap the drums and pretend but uh <laughs> but yeah yeah uh, you know um <laughs> but but these guys like okay so there's a few distinct and as i dug deeper into the eagles a couple years ago i started to really i don't know appreciate a lot of things about them that had kind of just like flown by or I don't know, because there is I think we have to mention like the elephant in the room. I mean, we've brought it up before. But the other thing that like spurred me on to sort of like embrace the Eagles was the weird kind of like hipster uh, animosity that exists in like modern day culture. I'd say particularly with like Gen Xers and 
like in a trickle down kind of way like millennials as well and i think a a lot of that could be just like how much radio play they got growing up they were like absolutely everywhere and maybe a lot of people got sick of a song like hotel california or take it easy or peaceful easy feeling but i think a lot of it also had to do with that big lebowski scene which is yes. it's kind of interesting how like one little scene could become such a dominant meme around this band that was like so much bigger than the Big Lebowski. But for like a younger generation, for these younger generations, it was basically like just the fact that the dude is like, oh, not the fucking Eagles, man. Like that became the first thing out of like 75 percent of people's mouths for a long time when you would like bring up the Eagles. And then I don't know, like I don't know if that just like connected with how people were already thinking. This is also during their like relatively like cringy, like boomer, like we're rich boomers making a bazillion dollars on this tour period. So I think they were uh, more ripe than ever in some ways to be like poked fun at a little bit. Mm -hmm. And Don Henley like makes it a little easy to poke fun at him sometimes because he's so serious. But, uh, but still that that it jumped out at me, especially in the last couple of years when I started reading more about it first, like the sus, like sixties kind of Laurel Canyon type scene and all the weird connections going on there. And then also like the punk rock, scene which kind of ended up really birthing like 90s alternative rock in a lot of ways like i think that they were even though those the 90 your your average 90s band probably was influenced by 60s and 70s music it was like cooler to claim a lineage of either like punk rock or like metal or something along those lines you know mm-hmm. It got into the hipster yeah. mode today of like naming the most like saying that, you know, oh, the Melvins like influenced us or like, you know, Mud Honey or like these re- or the germs, like these kind of relatively obscure bands that like weren't like super, super big. But then you're like kind of in it's like that uh that like LCD sound system, like losing my edge song. Like he doesn't mention the Eagles in that like litany, that obnoxious litany of like all the cool artists that like he listens to you know that like aging hipster and uh you know because it's like not cool it's clearly like not cool and having lived in new york for a while and you can surely attest to this that like there's not the same like love or attention paid or anything like relating to the eagles they're they're such a quintessentially california band that i think out west uh they they attracted a much stronger kind of a following and like an enduring kind of appreciation whereas in new york maybe they always looked at it as a little bit like soft like light like substanceless like california whatever i mean would you agree with that i mean i knew i honestly like i just didn't have like a consciousness of the eagles or really of i did have a sense of the big lebowski thing when people i i knew one guy who was all about the eagles that's basically it uh like other than that i didn't really like maybe springsteen it's weird because i feel like you did know springsteen and did like springsteen because i would say like springsteen is maybe sort of an equivalent someone who i heard all the time growing up like on the east coast uh, yeah, 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 well, yeah, exactly. I but I, yeah, I you had, know? I had family well, on the like, East Coast and stuff, so across. I had roots on the East Coast, so I kind of understood the vibe of like Springsteen a little bit, if that makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, I mean, I did like uh, when I was in high school, like uh, you know, I discovered like again through my parents, I think, like through my mom, like Jackson Brown, 
and mm-hmm. I had Late for the Sky, which I really liked. Uh, Great album. And, you know, Great I was album. actually surprised to discover that he was like the fifth eagle, kind of. But it kind of makes well, sense. Well, I, like, I, I think they usually call music, they, they usually call know. J.D. Souther the kind of like the sixth eagle or something like that. Jackson Brown, I mean, he did fill in sometimes and play with them live. And he, of course, co-wrote. He mostly wrote Take It Easy, which they covered mm-hmm. into like, yeah. it was well, like you know, their first There was that part hit. of the documentary where I think Don Henley was saying like, you know, he lived like in a an apartment like a, above Jackson Brown or like near him or something. Oh, Glenn Fry like, did. Yeah, yeah. yeah they they yeah, lived in right, Echo right, Park right. together uh and right, yeah, yeah, lived he lived in the right. basement uh, really beneath Glenn Fry. There was a really funny part where he was like, you know, I would listen to him and he would be writing these songs on his piano and he would write a verse and then he would do a chorus and then he would do a second verse and I thought that's how you do it, you know, like that's how you write a song. It's like, yeah, uh, word. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Parts of the song. Uh, yeah. But yeah, uh, so, you know, but I could definitely, like, I definitely was reminded of him, you know, and of that of that CD and listening to the Eagles, you know, prepare for this episode. But well, yeah, yeah and they, like, they were really, all part you know, of that second generation of L.A. kind of country folk singers that followed the first gen of like the Laurel Canyon people like this is like post Manson. And also, I think the I want to say the first artist, uh, I think, signed by this young hotshot from New York who was just a lowly, I think, you know, William Morris uh, talent scout named David Geffen. I believe Jackson Brown was his first client. And then he started uh, basically a small record label called Asylum Records, which... Oof, that yeah, name. Uh, interesting name. For ar- yeah, exactly. They're saying like it's gonna be a safe place for artists. Like, what's this whole thing? But it definitely yeah, like seeking like, asylum. But like, know, that's not how I music. always yeah, interpreted like, it. Exactly. Like, that's this is where the crazy artists go, so we can lock them up in the Hotel California yeah, State Hospital. That's not your first you know? association <laughs> with the word asylum. It always seems like you know. Yeah, obviously we still have the phrase seeking asylum, but. Uh-huh. You know, uh, an asylum literally does mean like a safe place, but most people think of like you know a mental institution that's like yeah, yeah. Way, you know? Which yeah. As, as we'll get uh, into a little bit and like the biography of like the '70s and their life on the road, like it did increasingly resemble like a, an absolute madhouse, and like they all kind of were like driven to the brink of insanity by the pressures of the music business by you know the end of the decade. And uh, yeah, Geffen. I mean, we'll we'll reference him in and out. He definitely deserved. I want to read the couple books that he hates that were written about him i think one was called the operator the other one was called the rise and rise of david geffen and i mean he still is one of the most powerful and kind of feared people in hollywood to this day and none of it would have been possible without the eagles basically they were his first come up in a big way though he also he did sign a bunch of artists that i mean I have to give it to him to sort like I don't know what he was really up to, but he did seem to have very good taste in music. Like I'll give him that. And he was very savvy about picking artists like Jackson Brown, the Eagles, Joni Mitchell. I believe he signed Neil Young after he like split off from Crosby Stills Nash and Young. And uh people like that that were in this like country rock scene. For and also Tom Waits, who I was like a huge fan of when I was uh a teenager yeah, right. i mean Probably. i guess i still yeah. am but uh yeah and the eagles 55. you know famously yeah. it covered old 55 exactly which uh i kind of you know I, I remember that kind of as a teenager like oh the eagle the eagles covered a tom Waits song wow okay and uh right. i, I didn't never really listen to a different like future like if you listen to that album tom Waits' album that old 55 oh yeah on, closing uh, time closing time yeah, yeah yeah if you listen to that you can definitely see the genealogy of like tom Waits and the eagles uh mm-hmm. but like later on 
Tom like it gets a little it gets where he's like you wouldn't guess it once he adopts his like yeah doing all that shit yeah he wanted to exactly uh interesting artist but you know these were all like these were all like legit people and unlike a lot of the 60s bands that had like a mixture of kind of talented singers and songwriters and then just like maybe people with pretty voices that couldn't play guitar and you had to bring in the wrecking crew to like play for them you know like david crosby and stuff like that all these people were actually like very accomplished musicians and songwriters and singers and Mm. like had the kind of the whole package to like actually and it did inaugurate this kind of era this new era of authenticity with the kind of singer songwriter thing you know um and which was really dominant in like the first half of the 1970s and some really like relatively I think kind of adult and like introspective and mature music. I think the thing I realized with the Eagles is they get so bagged on and perhaps rightfully so in like today's world for being kind of of so emblematic of kind of the more unfortunate tendencies of the boomer generation of like uh, selling out, like uh, being like thinking you're the center of the universe, like having huge egos, but being like kind of sanctimonious and like thinking you're a hero and uh, just being, I don't know, like cornballs and and all this stuff. And, you know, at the same time, I think that like their actual work when they were quite young, like in their twenties, like throughout the seventies is like remarkably mature. I think both for their age and compared to like the decades of music following it. Like music got more puerile, and as we talked about, the timbral variety uh, started to plummet like steadily in you know the eighties, nineties, and you know onto today. And they just like they were actually seeking. I think they were they were I think really trying to be like craftsmen and mm-hmm. like make the absolute best uh, kind of music out of like the talents and you know uh, resources at their disposal. And they they did want to take it to the limit, but I think it was kind of in a pure way. And then on top of that, the vibe of their music, which I think has often been, I think even by some of the Eagles themselves, character, I think Bernie Ledden said this in the documentary, that the reason he thought Take It Easy was such a hit was because there had just been, like, the late 60s had been such a clusterfuck and ended with all these assassinations and Altamont. And then there was the Kent State Massacre, which we'll come back to. And Nixon was bombing Cambodia and all these horrible things were happening. And, like, the young people were just, like, burnt out and, like, dejected and totally fucked. And then this song came on that was just like, hey, like, take it easy. And then people just, like, went for it. And a lot of people have read that. It's like basically uh, the Eagles showed up to tell like the youth of America to go back to sleep and stop worrying about politics and just take it easy. But I think as with a lot of those songs, I think you could kind of read into it from a few different angles, including that. And I think a lot of I think a lot of their music is like this. There's a there's a kind of like catharsis um, after a period of like dejecting trauma that I think pervades a lot of their music, um, maybe particularly the early stuff in the kind of Watergate era, you know, in the late Nixon era, where they are telling you to like cool off and like gather yourself and like find a place to make your stand. And it's also about, you know, finding a, a cute girl in uh, Winslow, Arizona, pulling up in a flatbed Ford, um, slowing down to take a look at you. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it's, I mean, it, it's I like, mean, it's very is, simple. And like, is that like so mature? 
Well, I don't no, no, know. I don't think like, that song. I don't think no, no, that song's not mature. That song's not mature. I think okay, that right. what I really yeah. refer to uh, with the, the maturity really comes more. Honestly, I would say probably like mostly. Uh, I think Hotel California is the most mature and reflective, and I think it 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 uh, it embodies a kind of ambivalent. I don't know. I I think that there there was kind of a moment in like the mid to late seventies where America was kind of doing a little bit of like a gut check on itself. We, like Vietnam had finally just ended and like total disaster and disgrace. You had Nixon out. You had. Um, all these commissions of like on assassinations and like MK Ultra and like the CIA doing all this bad shit and the economy was kind of like faltering and like there was like inflation and it just seemed like you know uh, like where do we go from here you know and so I think a song like The Last Resort which I think you said that you enjoyed yeah um, I, which I think I is that uh, was like you know we're like probably lyrically the best I mean Hotel California and Last Resort are both are both very good um, uh-huh. you know, yeah. Uh, you see a certain clarity good, like, and a kind of ambivalence towards, uh, like, like they, they haven't, like, really swallowed, even though the 70s was called the me decade, and to many extent, like, to large extent, they were, like, absolutely living that out to, like, the max in, in like, pretty uh, crazy ways, but, uh, yeah, but they also... Yeah, like, is not mature either. No, no, like, I don't mean uh, that they were you know, mature, but I meant, yeah, like, the type right. of music that they were uh-huh. trying towards, it was not, um, and you know they 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 all talked about how they were perceived for a while as like too boring too mild like they weren't rocking hard enough like kiss because they, they you know they they shared the rise of the yeah, charts right. like I mean, sure there was like fleetwood mac but kiss, you know yeah like it's and i will say, i will like, beat you know. up on kiss they're sus yeah, uh you know um, knights and satan yeah. service those ss lightning bolts no 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 um yeah, not that uh, but you know no, like something sure. like ziggy stardust like... the star man you know or alice yeah. cooper mm-hmm. like basically beef and phantom of the paradise like this kind of yeah. like really um like right. just yeah. like bleh, like i'm crazy and it's funny because they were doing all the same drugs and living the same kind of like hardcore lifestyle but their music yeah. was like so smooth and so like calming and stuff yeah. most of the time there are stars in the southern sky Now we're jumping through the whole thing, so maybe like uh, l- let's just let's just rewind to the beginning and explain <laughs> the the little uh, like the the bridge from Laurel Canyon to the e- like who who the who the hell are these guys and you know are they sus? We have to we have to do that sus check first, right? You know, mm-hmm. like what kind of thing did they come from? Like did one of their great 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 grandfathers like found the colony of like New Amsterdam? Uh did, you know, their dad work on LSD experiments at Fort Detrick, etc. And mm-hmm. I think for the most part we can say no. Like for the most part that's not true with any of the original egos. The only one is Bernie Ledden whose dad was a nuclear physicist. Yeah, 
he worked like in the space program too, right? He did like some I think space he did shit. If I'm not mistaken. yeah, so yeah, right. there's a little of that um going on. But uh, anyway, so like all of these, most of the the original four Eagles were Don Henley, Glenn Fry, Bernie Ledden, and Randy Meisner. Now most of them had met because they were hired to play. They were in they were all in like a few different bands that had like limited success though bernie ledden was in the flying burrito brothers with graham parsons who we talked about and i believe bernie ledden was playing at altamont where every other boomer hero just so happened to be that day like george lucas is there with the camera like uh vito palikas like freaking on a pole like tim leary's there with like uh the hell's angels and mick jagger you know just the grateful dead's hanging out like just the whole gang was there um and but then he he left uh I think he left the Flying Burrito Brothers uh, after Graham Parsons left, after like two albums. And uh, he had played in Clark and Dillard with Gene Clark from The Birds, who apparently was like the main actual talent and creative force behind The Birds. Um, And then they all ended up kind of playing on the road with Linda Ronstadt, who is also somebody who is like really great, who doesn't get enough props i think um linda ronstadt was though i mean she also um we'll see she dated cherry brown (laughs) like later um there's a lot of crazy stuff uh but basically on that like don henley and glenn fry ended up being roommates on the road and they just started like becoming buddies and playing music together and uh i don't think they started actually like writing songs yet but eventually they got it in their head that like they wanted to form their own band and i guess uh Linda Ronstadt and her manager were, by all accounts, very chill and supportive about it and said, okay, yeah. So they scooped up the bassist from a band called Poco, which is founded by Richie Fure, who was in Buffalo Springfield, another connection, that was Randy Meisner, and Mm -hmm. they got him together and then they went after Bernie Bernie Ledden, the ex-Flying Burrito brother, who was like a virtuosic mandolin and five string banjo and lap steel guitar player he was like a real country purist yeah uh, he was and the most was established and actually like yeah. he was kind of the face of the band at first like uh and a little bit older yeah than the rest of them if i'm not mistaken like he you know he was the most familiar with the industry and stuff you know yeah uh, exactly uh, exactly and he was like kind of their like swiss army knife of like country sound like he could really yeah. bring it in like a real way and Though they were all, like, talented. I mean, Don Henley was the drummer. He was, like, a good drummer. Not the best drummer ever, but, like, he was good. And he did sing, though he was pretty shy in the beginning and and was not... um, The two really... On their first album, so, you know, they apparently they marched into David Geffen's office at Asylum Records in, like, 1971 and were like, here we are, take it or leave it, or something like that. <laughs> that was, like, mm-hmm. how they described it. And David Geffen was like, okay, uh, I'll take it. So they, they set to work, like, they went out to Aspen. I don't know why Aspen is such a big place for all these people to hang out at, but I guess they were mm-hmm. in Aspen. They played, you know, they jammed for, like, a couple months and tried to, like, figure out their sound and I guess the I think the British producer Glenn Johns came out to see them, and he was like not very impressed. He thought they he said they were quote confused, um, and they like didn't know if they were a yeah. country band or a rock I band. Think actually, uh, yeah. uh, you know, one of the lines that I liked a lot about uh, in Last Resort was you know I'm I live in New England, so like uh, mm-hmm. you know the very opening when he's talking about you know someone who came from Providence, from Providence. And, like where the old world shadows you know hang heavy hang in the air. Heavy what, in the air. That I like. 
a lot about New England, but I think that the, I heard a little bit more about the story, and I guess it was a personal story of like some person that uh, he dated or whatever, uh, and I guess she had eventually moved out to Aspen, you know, like at the time when it was sort of like, you know, this uh, sort of a free place to like be like out east you know like uh, yeah. to be with nature but mm-hmm. didn't ha- quite have the connotations that like aspen has now and like the yeah. song the last resort like you know the story of like what kind of happened to aspen like over the course of the time between then and now like is some hard, rich men came and song, raped the land so. nobody caught them yeah put up a bunch um, of ugly boxes and jesus people bought them mm, yeah right yeah yes. it was a somebody uh, laid the mountains low while the town got high oh so many good double entendres in that song um don right. henley is kind of a master of like the like uh sort of kind of like middle brow like literary double entendre like it's he's mm-hmm. kind of a master of it um but anyways yeah like they um they were kind of but then when glenn johns heard them harmonize in their four-part harmony he was like oh shit like that is that is something so then Mm -hmm. they kind of decided to like center that as much as possible and it is kind of like one of the best things about the eagles particularly when it was just the four of them their like blend of voices is uh kind of like amazing i don't know i i think it's hard to beat like it's probably the best since like the beach boys you know, mm-hmm. and um, I, I think it it's still good at, later on when some people leave, but particularly having Randy Meisner in there. He is the secret weapon with his falsetto. And they, mm-hmm. you know, they, they set out on that first album. And yeah, I think Don Henley only sang one song, Witchy Woman, which is a great early example of like the Eagles kind of interacting with the susness of Los Angeles a little bit. And coming across mm-hmm. some like witchy woman who's like obsessed with crystals and astrology, but might also like hypnotize you or something, and might has maybe killed people. Like it's it's really um, <laughs> it's it's a good vibe. It's a good vibe. And also Randy Meisner's song "Take the Devil," which I kind of love. Like some of the best songs mm-hmm. on all their albums are the Randy Meisner ones where he sings lead. And that he yeah. wrote, you know, the the lyrics for, and like, there's always like a real sentimental but like haunted quality to uh, to most of his big, you know, uh, his his tracks, and yeah, I mean, the, the first album came out had like three singles, obviously like Take It Easy, you know, just like blue pilled everybody into like not protesting anymore, so that was a hit, mm-hmm. and Peaceful Easy Feeling, and then Witchy Woman, which is like the Bernie Ledden and Don Henley wrote together, and then was Don Henley's like first. Uh, vocal drumming lead performance and that was like oh cool like we're a successful band now then they moved on I believe in like 72 they followed it up pretty quickly with Desperado which I'm sure everyone's like aware of that song but I don't know if everybody's like listened to that whole album because it's like one of their two concept albums that again I feel like is relatively mature it has like some very mature themes and like interesting themes going on in it that I don't think it hasn't been dissected nearly as deeply as Hotel California but I had a kind of weird intuition listening to it a little while ago that you know basically like kind of like Hotel California it's a metaphor about America in 1972 as told through this kind of story that's based on the Doolin Dalton gang who I guess were a bunch of lawmen out west who became bank robbers and outlaws. And they had gotten all these like old like historical books about the old west and were like reading them for inspiration for months. And they all became like fixated on this like band of outlaws 
and that's like who Desperado is basically referring to in the title track. It's probably their most like heavily like country album, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of banjo, a lot of mandolin, slide guitar and stuff like that. But it's got some really great, uh, I think, Certain Kind of Fool, which Randy Meisner sings, which the entire song is I think they had an outside writer for that one, but it's the entire song is a double entendre about him being like a gunfighter outlaw, but also like yeah, being a rock right. star. It's great. Mm, it's yeah. great. It's just okay. like I love it. Uh, I love it. Uh, it's a yeah, like you know, he saw the poster on the wall, the picture of a wanted man. Like you know, he kind of liked the feeling, so shiny and smooth in his hand. He took it to the country and practiced for days without rest. You know, like it's oh, it's a guitar, right, but it's also yeah. a gun. Like you know, right. it's like a mm-hmm. great like yeah. middle, great mid cult songwriting. I think. Um, yes. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's good mid cult songwriting. And yeah. I kind of think it's yeah. about. I even think the title track, which most people like know that people know it i think is i i hear kind of like it's a it's him kind of like interrogating america itself like america is the desperado and like it's like and it's kind of about vietnam a little bit like vietnam is almost like this like a spree of like you know a bank robbing spree or something like out on the imperial frontier but it's like desperado why won't you come to your senses You've been out riding fences for so long now. You know, you're a hard one, and I know that you got your reasons, but you're going to end up alone. Like, you're, you know, your prison is walking through this world all alone. Like, other countries don't want to fuck with you anymore because they're mad about Vietnam. Thanks to uh, you know Foucault, the notorious Pedo, uh, <laughs> we can uh, you know read different things uh, into the lyrics. But I also feel like this is kind of about you know like himself and like how you know he's feeling free or whatever, or the freedom of like being a rocker. But it's actually like a prison, you know. Yes, uh, yes. Which is like yeah, the overarching also, theme of you know, so much in the Eagles is like right, I'm free, yeah, but sure. I feel like I'm a slave in like a prison that I can't escape. Yes, definitely true. Which is maybe yeah. one of maybe the most like resonant theme in all Which the is, Eagles yeah. catalog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like uh, we're yeah, actually in like a slave complex. Yes, I mean definitely, you know, true to an extent. They were victims in a way of a, a system, but uh, it's a little bit ironic because it, it's uh, borderline one of those things that makes you want to say like, "Get over it," you know, like. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but I'm a pigeon. Know, I like want a pigeon to fit. Get yeah. over it. 
yeah, yeah, uh, yeah probably exactly. the cringiest yeah, song yeah. ever get over it. that they did. <laughs> yeah, yeah get over it yeah. uh bernie and randy uh get over um, it don felder but yeah no yeah, uh, well but... I, it made me reflect on how like the dynamics of the music industry almost make me uh, especially after reading don felder's autobiography which we'll get to in a little bit which is kind of a, a definitely an alternative history of a lot of the things that happen um that it, it almost feels like everybody in the music industry is either like an abuser or a victim and like you have to be like either one or the other or like a mixture of both but like it you know what like you know what i'm sure that's not like literally true but it feels like it pushes you towards one or the other of those dynamics where like you're either gonna get totally taken advantage of and like exploited and then maybe like literally destroyed by it or you're gonna like side with like the masters and then you're gonna become like and i feel like don and glenn ultimately ended up be, like siding with the masters and right, uh, the thought yes. it's better to be a master than a slave. And then everyone else in the Eagles is in some form of like music industry slavery uh, or, you yeah, know, it's, it, uh, I mean, it's a cutthroat world and I, I really do empathize with, you know, this is my first uh, experience encountering a lot of this material and these uh, histories and, and mythoi, you know, but I definitely did empathize with, like the eagles who were forced out you know Mm -hmm. uh i think you know i i understand like bernie's position you know like Mm -hmm. uh i think that you know he seemed to have some remorse about pouring that uh bottle of budweiser or whatever (laughs) Uh, i love how they were also another amazing boomer thing about them is that they love budweiser and they're like yeah long neck buds budweiser yeah like cool (laughs) you know obviously he had some remorse about it but you know i understand like why he because you know like we talked about he kind of was like in the band from the beginning he almost Mm -hmm. had sort of like a very front center role it was one kind of thing and like these two guys like just went insane like they went fucking nuts they got like crazy for like becoming rockers which is like just a bizarre like thing to find myself obsessed with yeah exactly like it's almost like they were possessed by like this uh, idea of being rockers uh, you know uh, it feels yeah. there are shaitanic influences like lurking in the wings and I think you know looking at it t- like today it's like yeah like why couldn't you just stay like this cool country rock band that you were like why I mean it's cool you want to like you know go, but like the fear and the insecurity only increased as they got more successful and they like, developed yeah, these ideas it, that we I mean, have to become yeah. like a rock band like the fact that people don't take us seriously as a rock band is like unacceptable and like yeah, we need exactly. to like show them yeah yeah like well but i don't like you know if you're really like making music like do you really care that much about like what genre like you are or whatever you know i don't know yeah like, uh, and to I be mean, fair Taylor bernie obviously had her own foibles where she's like i gotta be pop you know i'm making my uh-huh. pop album etc like of course uh you know i noticed that with her before i even you know knew much about the eagles where it's like why mm-hmm. do you have this obsession with like being like who the fuck cares like about being pop like versus well, country exactly. you know the the analogies uh you know uh just proliferate but uh, well you know i think yeah, there is you know. i mean it can get problematic to talk about but there is a kind of like i don't know I don't know if you call it like a cosmopolitan or like a coastal bias towards the country music industry and genre in general. And there's always been this kind of ambivalent relationship of like there's some really great kind of musicianship and sounds and songs that come out of country. But like it's like, you know, never go full country because like that's just I mean, uh, what's the like? 
there's that like sort of cliche phrase that like you know uh you either actually unironically hear or you hear people throw out as like you know an archetypally like obnoxious opinion which is like i like everything except for rap and country you know yes, like yes. uh and so like you can kind there's of kind of see, a horseshoe theory going on where like side by side yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> like hardcore rap and hardcore country versus, are, are too yeah like too they're othery. Both, they're know, too othery. Yeah, I don't know. Exactly. Um, they're for they're, and, well. They're they're for the proles. They're for you know the uh, you know the the. They're not high art. They're not high yeah, art. Exactly. You know. Uh, and I mean, um, like pop not, country is like incredibly. But again, like these are just kind of subcategories of like mainstream music, uh, where like they're just like kind of their own top four universe. You know, pop country yeah, is, yeah. like, awful and shitty, but, like, a lot of, it like, is. you know, as we've talked about in many episodes, a lot of, like, mainstream hip-hop is also fucking awful. Yeah. Well, bo- both uh, have been, like, there, there's been popified versions of both, like, rap and hip-hop and country yeah. now that kind of have their own presence well, and, and in a way, kind of pop, dominance like, over those know, genres. Like, like, you know, yeah, like, uh, yeah, like I guess yeah. pop is just, like, whatever... Whatever, why don't you just meet me in the middle is. Although she was originally a country person too, the person who sang that song, I guess, was like a sort of well, country crossover person. But yeah, they do, you uh, know, they do value like good singing in country still, in a kind of a more classical yeah. sort of sense. So it's a good farm system for plucking out people that have good singing and, yeah, voices, and, and then you can the, like, the sort of doctor lucify them. There's the heritage of, like, folk music, you know, country and folk. They kind of, like, yep. go hand-in-hand to an extent. Like, uh, folk Which are really, a I different mean, thing, but, yeah. It's a little uh, bit different, but if you if you want to think about it, like, I'd say the... Because if you boil all this music down and kind of go back to, like, the early 20th century, there's really, like, kind of a few genres of American music that ended up sort of shaping the entire landscape of, like, American music. And most of them came from African-American, like, populations and traditions, basically. Mm -hmm. So you had basically jazz, you had rhythm and blues, and, uh, and then you also had folk and you had country, which did have more, like, I mean, country was a kind of very, like, white, uh, kind of, you know, version of music, uh, but still very rural and folk, of course, like had kind of came yeah. from all over the place, but also had uh, a kind of rural and, uh, yeah, and, I and, mean, and like, you'll kind you of know, straddle the line sometimes between blues. Like there's yeah. a lot of, yeah, influence, like, uh, you know, uh, moving mm-hmm. across. And then of like, course, rock and roll, which like synthesized like rhythm and blues and, uh, or yeah. blues and rhythm and blues and stuff like that. And then, you know, the, the kind of genius synthesis, whoever initially came up with it in the sixties, uh, of basically combining like sort of folk, like you know like acoustic based folk um often with a kind of you know social political message like woody Guthrie type stuff that bob dylan and jen baez were kind of riffing on and then combine that with like the electrified rock and roll sound that had been developed by black musicians who were like kind of upgrading our rhythm and blues into something a little more peppy and upbeat and uh i mean you already saw with elvis how they managed to like kind of mainstream that sound and break it into the mainstream with this like handsome you know hip gyrating like white artist and stuff but i mean all the eagles were pretty much grew up in parts of the country where they were exposed to black music and they all give that a lot of credit for basically like sparking their interest and 
I mean, what's more boomery than this? But like all of them say it that like seeing the Beatles on TV in like yeah, 1964 right. was like a bolt of it lightning. Just changed that, my life. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah. Were they like putting like weird subliminal messages in like the Ed Sullivan Show performances? Like like how did everybody get so just like blown away by the Beatles and like. It, it still kind of boggles my mind. Like, you know what I mean? Like, okay, they're good. But, like, you know, Glenn yeah. Fry had a hilarious story of, like, he begged, I think he, like, begged his parents to, like, let him go see the the Beatles when they came to Detroit, where he grew up, when he was a teenager. Yeah. And during the Beatles performance, like, an older right. teenage girl just, like, fainted and, like, fell He's back like, into his Paul! arms. Yeah, like, screaming about yeah, Paul. Like, yeah, Paul! Exactly. And that <laughs> yeah. was the moment where he, uh, in true Glenn Fry fashion, was like, hey, like, this scene seems yeah. like a cool gig, you know, like yeah, uh, put on right. his sunglasses and hopped in a red Corvette and like sped yeah. off, uh, you know, right. but basically yeah. it's like for him, it was like he realized that like that was the way to be cool and like get girls and stuff. And like, I, you know, Don Felder said something kind of similar, but um, for him, it was also like rising out of like extreme poverty and uh, and basically it was like the only thing available to him. But, you know, Don Henley also grew up in Texas, kind of rural Texas right. and yeah. was able to catch mm-hmm. the signals from from a black radio station in New Orleans. So he got really like blues pilled at a very young age. You know, they all loved like BB right. King and Glenn Fry was like obsessed with Motown growing up, obviously. Right. Um, yeah, and he also had like a weird, they, all these guys like met somebody that ended up being really big, which is like kind of bizarre. Like, uh, like Glenn Fry managed to meet um, Bob Seger in Detroit when he was like 18 and like convince Bob Seger to like let him play like session guitar and stuff like that. And I think introduced him, helped him like when he moved out to LA to like introduce him to a few people. Don Henley did the same thing with Kenny Rogers in Dallas and like spammed him to be like Kenny Rogers like please come like come see my band and Kenny Rogers was like I, I normally don't do that but I figure this young kid seems pretty insist he's pretty eager so why not and then he like signed their first band Shiloh to his record label so that worked it's just like boomers just like stumble into like just amazing things happening to them yeah. <laughs> like it's just like so right. wow like how nice uh, and Don Felder who had joined the group later he grew up in Gainesville I think where the University of Florida is and And when he was playing in a teenage band called the Continentals, he met this young kid, this military brat with like a crew cut who had a really good singing voice. And I guess he had moved to Florida because his like military dad had moved there. And then one day he like disappeared after playing with him for a while. He disappeared one day and there were like rumors that like he moved to Central America because his family was like moving to do military stuff down there. That guy's name was Stephen Stills. And so, like, okay, like, uh, Buffalo Springfield, like, uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And, uh... So, yeah, they all, like, bumped into people like that. And uh, and Don Felder also became friends with Bernie Leadon because I guess his dad moved to the University of Florida to work on nuclear research or something when he was a teenager. And they, like, played right. together for a little while. And so they knew each other going way back. So uh, I guess it was, like, if you're into music back then, I don't know. Like, it was easy to just bump. I'd, oh, also, Don Felder gave guitar lessons to, like, a 12-year-old Tom Petty. <laughs> like, it's just like, <laughs> what? You know, it's like, uh, like, I didn't, I didn't know games. Gainesville, Florida was like this hotbed of like, and I guess when you add like Graham Parsons to it, Florida kind of, um, even I, I hate to say it, but you know, maybe Florida doesn't get enough love or enough credit for producing, mm. 
you know, all these like boomerang yeah. musicians and stuff. Uh, but but anyway, so they created Desperado, which like I recommend people listen to. Uh, I think even if it's not about Vietnam, I think it is about kind of <laughs> both where they're yeah. at and where like America is at. Like oh, the the reprise, the Doolin Dalton Desperado mashup reprise at the end, uh, mm-hmm. highly underrated. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Queen of Diamonds let you down. She was just an empty fable. The Queen of Hearts, it's always your best bet. Mm-hmm. It's just like warning America to like stop being so imperialist and fascist and uh anyways so that album which i think is like pretty is would still it it upheld you know it stood up to the test of time but it actually wasn't that popular and it didn't sell very well and so the pressure they got right, was yeah. like, hmm. Because uh, it was right, a cowboy Eagles. record, and it's yep. like, no, like uh, and they got psyoped by... They got earned uh, for being too yeah. country. The queen of diamonds let you down. She was just an empty fable. The queen of hearts, you say, never met. Your twisted fate has found you out And it's finally turned the table Stole your dreams and paid you With regret So, yeah, they got kind of psyoped or, I don't know, got a cold shoulder, got a little bit of an erm from the music press for releasing Desperado uh, until Linda Ronstadt did a cover of it and then it made a little more popular. But this is where the dialectic uh, within the Eagles started to, like, heat up and intensify between are they a country band or are they a rock band? And it's like they even though they always were a little bit of both, I guess they felt like they really needed to be more rock or else they risked fucking their careers up um after yeah. if their third album didn't do well you know they get written off as just like some lame like country band and so while they were recording their third album on the border they decided they needed like they needed a pinch hitter to to beef up the guitar action in their band and right. so as a result of that yeah. uh they went back oh, to yeah. bernie right. bernie Ledden's mm-hmm. uh high school buddy from gainesville florida the inimitable Don Fingers Felder. Um, that was right. his nickname, Fing- Fingers Felder. And I think for good reason, because he's probably, he he's one of like the 
the nastiest guitar players I think from that era and I feel like he's he's really been done dirty probably arguably more than anybody maybe Randy more but I feel like in terms of getting like totally screwed over and like disrespected and like emotionally mm-hmm. abused by the Eagles um, I feel <laughs> you know really bad but you know they brought him he was working as a session musician Bernie had convinced him to like finally come out to LA he was living in Boston actually I think he was teaching mm-hmm. lessons at the Berkeley College of Music for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So he was, like, a very accomplished, like, guitarist who, yeah, grew up, like, very dirt poor and had just scrapped his way, like, into being a session musician. And they brought him in, and he jammed with them, and he started adding some of those signature licks that uh, are, like, so key to all the Eagle songs of, like, the second half of, like, the 70s. And they released that, and it did pretty well. Um, it's actually a good album. It's like, it's like a good. I don't think they ever had like a bad album, except for maybe the long run. But we'll get to that. But you know, it's got <laughs> okay. some good. It's got like my man, which is like Bernie Ledden's like tribute to Graham Parsons, who had just died, and it has like some other I think it had the best of my love which is their first number one single which is kind of a corny ballad but like a good corny ballad and Mm -hmm. yeah so then you know that kind of put them on like it's also when I get they got they enlisted the services they dropped their British producer who was like sick of them and right and he was like you're not uh you know you the who is a rock band you're You're not not the who yeah, or whatever. yeah. There was a funny well, anecdote where because yeah. he, he had he had recorded Led Zeppelin and Don Henley kept asking him to like make his drums sound more like John Bonham's and he's like, well then mm-hmm. fucking hit it harder. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's like yeah, like like play more like him if you wanted to sound like him, dummy. Uh, you know, so like he he kind of exacerbated some of their insecurities. Like and so they needed yeah. a new producer and they found this guy who had found his way into the record industry after being a a sonar operator in the U.S. Navy hunting for Soviet submarines. So, you know, a little bit of a a slight sus connection there, but really more just a sign of, like, the times, of, like, that's a thing that would definitely happen. And I'm talking about the Soul Pole himself, Bill Simzik, um, the, like, large uh, Polish bear of a man who ended up becoming, like, one of the preeminent mixers and producers and engineers of like the era and he was brought in because he had recently done some records for the solo artist joe walsh and they liked the kind of really like like punchy sound and the sonic perfection that he was able to achieve in all those recordings so they brought him in and like so their sound got a little more i think it does sonically it sounds kind of better mixed for them i think on the third album but then it was like okay you've done this now you got five people you have three guitarists uh and you got to start you know uh well first i think they went on tour but then this is where the actually it's worth mentioning how Don Felder describes it in his autobiography real quick, how it felt joining the Eagles, because on the one hand, he had a wife, um, uh, Susan, who I think he had just found out was pregnant, and he had just moved out to L.A. He was, like, freaked out that, like, they weren't going to be able to support themselves, and that he was just, like, a burnout hippie rocker that was going to be poor, and, like, his dad was right, that, like, his dad like maniacally would always tell him like why don't you cut your hair 
like, right, <laughs> like yeah. every time he saw him. Mm-hmm. I remember it was like that. really sad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just like why don't you cut your hair and be respectable? And you know he had worked in like a a, pa- a car plant his entire life and like that was like ruined his body like breathing in like industrial fumes all day and like it was just uh, like a broken man the, that that was you know so he was he was so jazzed that he got to be in this band now and like Glenn Fry like called him up personally and told him man like we're all gonna be like equal like because we had all been sidemen in bands before. When we started the Eagles, we decided like we're mm-hmm. all splitting it like four ways. And now, like I think they did a thing where it's like you're not going to get profits on the uh, on the songs on this album we wrote before you join, but like you'll have equal share on all the ones you did play on. And going forward, yeah. you're gonna have it's gonna be split five even ways through Eagles Ltd. And that's all it is. And, you know, he just thought like dream come true, amazing. But then mm-hmm. when he went to actually show up for the first day and like really join them and play with them he immediately sensed like oh like how fucked the vibes were that there was like a lot of um tension simmering just below the surface and that particularly i he was he was bummed out um that like bernie ledden his old friend who you know kind of introduced him to all the eagles was like really not having a great time and on top of that his new presence in the band as like a rock guitarist was seen as like edging out bernie's influence as a country you know mandolin banjo player that the band was you know going in this like non less country Mm -hmm. direction bernie was becoming more replaceable and so like that was a weird thing for don felder to confront and then just like the ultra kind of touchiness of like don and glenn which at that point was starting to creep up and at this point they were starting to write songs together regularly and you know of course they're hailed today as i think in in a lot of cases rightfully so for being like a great songwriting duo and everything but i guess that that took a pretty heavy uh cost and there was like a lot of just like like really sensitive emotions when they were in the studio playing together like any one little thing could just like piss off glenn or like piss off dawn and you know like randy was like walking on eggshells like in the background with his bass uh because apparently he wasn't an alpha according to joe walsh um right and, uh, <laughs> you know like it was just this like toxic kind of alpha atmosphere and they were all like hyper like obsessed on the next album because it's always like they just constantly felt this pressure um and i think it was like around this this is what 73 um so it's a little before well we'll talk about that in a second but like uh the pressure from like geffen and irving azoff who worked for geffen to like go on tour release an album record an album go on tour record an album like literally like every year just like keep going keep going keep going and what was already going on i think by the time that felder joined was uh, the way that you kept going in that kind of paradigm was uh lots and lots of cocaine yeah
before we before we fully delve into the departure of Bernie Ledden and then Hotel California, I want to pause here because on the business side of the the whole Eagles experience, um, this period of time is kind of interesting. And uh, I'll try not to get too down the rabbit hole, but it has some tentacles that spread very far and wide and might even explain a little bit of the more... Mm, uh, shatanic or I don't know uh, maybe Barbrook would say like Stalinist communist turn uh, in the Eagles with mm-hmm. Don and Glenn in the later 70s okay. as they uh, succumbed to doing an authoritarianism and all right. that stuff so they definitely did no growth um, yeah <clears throat> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah yeah but uh, it, it did not lead to like a cyber communist rock utopia apparently um, it did but no I, I'm just going to reference a little here from I think Don Felder's very interesting autobiography, Heaven and Hell, My Life in the Eagles, which I think, yeah, came out in 2008. But uh, in the one chapter here, chapter eight, he writes, now this is a little before he joined the Eagles. So we're jumping back a little bit, but he writes, I mean, David the title Geffen, of the book is just like super telling. Like, I just feel yeah. like if you would describe, yeah, anyway, but. Uh, he was thinking yeah. to himself, this could be heaven or this could be hell. And it turned out yeah. that it was there were parts of it that were heavenly but ultimately he was going to hell in a bucket yes yeah it was not good yeah despite not being in the grateful dead uh he found himself nevertheless in hell Mm -hmm. i guess they go to hell in a bucket in the eagles you're just trapped in hotel california forever and you can't escape but you can only check out so uh so anyway so he writes David Geffen seemed to be the common denominator with many of the new West Coast bands having the most success. Aggressively ambitious, having worked his way up from the mailroom at the William Morris Agency, Geffen was reaching for the stars, and whoever was hanging on to his coattails was undoubtedly in for a ride. Bernie knew Geffen was the key, so he took me along to his cramped second-floor offices in a building at the Beverly Hills end of Sunset Boulevard one day and plugged me as the hot new guitar player. Um, He says, uh, David was not that much older than I, but he was like a light bulb, radiant with energy, ideas, and excitement. Along with his partner, Elliot Roberts, he was a dynamic driving force, creating avenues for the artists who would come to define the Southern California music scene. There was a tremendous buzz around him and his company with its laid-back approach and talented young stars. David's office was a hotbed of creativity. He shrewdly took a unique combination of talented artists and combined them with great management skills. I don't think either one would have survived without the other element. Each one compelled them to international level. Whatever he was doing, it was working, and with the Eagles, he seemed to be trying to create the quintessential American band. It seemed that Geffen touched everything Geffen touched turned to gold, although I'm sure he crushed a few golden toes along the way. And he also writes that, uh, yeah, no one wore a suit and a tie. Most of his employees were in jeans with long hair, giving his office an atmosphere that was casual, yet up to the minute. The hierarchy was clear. Elliot Roberts was in charge of the company's two biggest acts, Joni Mitchell and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, whom he'd personally managed from the start. Geffen ran the day-to-day side of the company and handled a few key players of his own. The man in charge of the new Eagles account, along with clients Dan Fogelberg and wild rocker Joe Walsh, was the management company's number three, a brash, diminutive 20-something firecracker named Irving Azoff, who joined Gevin's office the previous year. And so that was how they came in with like Irving Azoff, who eventually would become their manager. So after they, I believe, after they released their third album, uh, On the Border, Geffen actually, he kind of makes a sudden decision without really telling the Eagles or anybody else to sell 
Asylum Records to Warner Communications. Now, everybody knows what Warner Brothers is, right? I mean... Yes. You know, Warner Brothers. It's a film studio, and, I, and it's also a yeah, music label. Yeah, the Animaniacs and, live inside of it, you mm-hmm, know. Yep, uh, the Animaniacs do live inside of it. And, yeah, so Asylum basically... Yes, in 1975... I guess he sold. Okay, th- this gets into some real Mark Lombardi like interlock territory. <laughs> so bear with me okay. if I get some right. of the exact years wrong. But around in the early '70s, I believe that Warner Brothers had acquired Atlantic Records, which, as we mentioned in the Dave McGowan episode, was run by a son of a young Turk, Ahmet Erdogan, who grew up on Embassy Row, and Frank Zappa named one of his children after him, and really pioneered this idea of like young good-looking like white bands playing basically black music mixed with folk and psychedelic stuff and all that thing he was a big deal but then he got absorbed by warner brothers and then something strange happened in the early 19 i believe it was maybe in 1969 the entire warner brothers kind of empire which was having some financial difficulties was bought by a company called the kinney parking company which was a New Jersey parking lot company owned by Manny Kimmel, Sigmund Dornbush, and mob figure Abner Zwillman. Now, who is Abner Zwillman? He was an American mob boss who rose to power in the criminal underworld in North Jersey. He was a longtime friend and associate of mobsters Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky, with whom he sat on the commission. Zwillman's criminal organization was part of the National Crime Syndicate and mainly operated from the 1920s to the 1950s, with its peak in the late 1930s. Now, he and these other guys started this basically like mob front company, the Kinney Parking Company. And it's hard to like imagine today, like such a thing just happening and like nobody batting an eye. But I guess they just bought all of Warner Brothers in like 1969. Yes, uh, they, after buying the Ashley Famous Talent Agency um, a little bit before that, um, and they were, and the whole thing was led by the the guy who had risen up to the top of the company, a guy named Steve Ross. And Steve Ross ended up being uh, the CEO of this new company that was called Warner Communications, which was Warner Brothers Movie Studio and Warner Music Group, which I guess like basically owned the Eagles and all the Asylum artists at the end of the day. The, the music industry always makes my head spin with all of these labels and sub-labels and distributors. Like, you always hear yeah. about, like, specific labels being... But they're always attached to, like, a big studio. Yeah, they're studio. all with the fucking same, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all basically the same. So you can see this, that it's, like, the same group of people, like, through a variety of shifting companies basically are controlling everything the entire time but these companies are just constantly morphing and i think we talked about god maybe even in the first episode about how people connected to bill casey and the company capital cities staged a kind of like hostile takeover of abc in the mid 80s and then that merged Mm -hmm. with disney and you know yada yada that's the disney we have today and a similar thing seems to have kind of happened here because they took over uh they took over warner brothers uh and uh 
and I think also Seven Art Studios in 1969. Then in 1972, uh, the National Kidney Corporation got um, basically caught up in a national financial like price fixing scandal <laughs> um, with their parking lots. Like there was there was a huge kind of like money laundering like uh, like financial scandal that basically got them into trouble with the law a little bit. So what they did is they spun off National Kidney corporation spun off all of their parking and other assets that weren't related to entertainment and then they just renamed themselves warner communications so it's like some kind of like corporate invasion of the body snatcher shit where they like went in and like just like they pulled off the skin of like warner brothers and like put it on like a mask or something they're like wearing warner brothers like face is like a mask and uh now they're they're just considered warner brothers um and so they then controlled basically atlantic records and uh asylum records and electra they merged electra and asylum together and then in like 1975 david geffen basically kind of sells his share in Asylum and leaves running it to go become a vice president of the Warner Brothers film division. So he's like still working for the same people, but now he's jumping over to the film industry. And I guess uh, he, I think he took some of the royalty stuff like with him when he quit in a way that was incredibly shady. And basically uh, the Eagles along with now, I guess the, the new head of that label, Irving Azoff, who then became like their full-time manager, um, sued David Geffen for like breach of contract. And then uh, it wouldn't be the first or it wouldn't be the last time that basically uh, they would get involved in lawsuits with David Geffen. They have a very, especially Don Henley has like a very um, like, like tolerate hate relationship with Geffen. But basically then Irving Azoff became like their guy. And I mean, uh, we'll pop up later, but Don Henley has has said repeatedly he has like a line about Irving Azoff that like uh, he's Satan, but he's our Satan, and I right. think it's a uh, probably an apt description judging by I don't know the the kind of um his management style and also like a sus thing for Don Henley to say like dude chill out like uh, why are you so excited about having uh, your own little Satan to like well anyways um so okay so uh, yeah so that is like a weird thing that i think jumps out and i think warrants further investigation down the line like was like a huge chunk of the, of the movie industry in like the early 70s just kind of like straight up bought out by the mafia like a mafia connected front company connected to meyer lansky mm. also interesting just like total you know, tangential thing but one of the most powerful producers or production companies that's attached to a studio in hollywood over the last 10 years has been rat pack which of course uh it featured at one time uh, steve mnuchin worked for it uh even produced mm. things like inherent or finance things like inherent vice but the main mover in it was uh ultra douchebag director producer brett ratner who i personally discovered uh, digging into him a couple years ago when he like almost got me too like 20 times but is still working um that his childhood mentor was this kindly old man he used to sit on like south beach miami and i guess he was like a lonely kid and this guy this old man just took him under his wing and was really cool and, and you know all that stuff it was almost like a father figure to him and then he died and found out that that guy was uh meyer lansky so, um, <laughs> you know, uh, so he's the biggest like finance. He's the guy who goes out and, and raises money for all of these big productions that happen 
ultimately in Warner Brothers. And as as we'll see, the company that was Warner Brothers, it eventually would merge into with Time in 1989 and become Time Warner. Then it would become AOL Time Warner. Now it's like Warner Meet. Like they're still around, but it's still the same core company. It's just like mm-hmm. merged with ten other things since then. And that of course covers even back in the 70s, like the the kind of the list of things that it controlled is really like it's kind of like everything. So, you know, you had like Warner Brothers movies, Warner Brothers television. They were a big pioneer in like cable TV, uh, the Warner Brothers music group, uh, Dimension Pictures and oh, look, DC Comics and Mad Magazine. Then eventually uh, one of their initiatives in, in the early 80s was a partnership or in 79 was a partnership with American Express that became Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment, which actually was the first to launch cable channels such as MTV, Nickelodeon the movie channel and VH1 and then eventually that was sold those channels were sold off to Viacom in the 80s and then it was renamed MTV Networks and that's like the so the even the entire MTV thing MTV was created by the same the, company the Eagles a lot down the line right like you know to get back on their feet uh, you know mm-hmm. at a at yep. a certain point, you know, having they a did a big um game. they did a big unplugged special and all that stuff right. uh, in, in cool. I think 1994 yes. and yeah yeah they they really went all out trying to push them and they they were pretty uh, kind to both Glenn Fry and Don Henley in the 80s they both had a couple you know Smugglers Brew no, sorry Smugglers Blues one of Subliminal Chad's favorite music videos. Yes, um, right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, really a staggering work. Uh, but also Don Henley's Boys of Summer and a few other hits. You know, he was out there yes. and, and he was I doing was a lot of duets. I was re to that song today. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Deadhead sticker uh, on a Cadillac. Yeah. Yeah. Right, very yes. interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, yes. you know, they were they were uh, basically they were helped throughout the 80s by MTV, even though Don Henley like hated kind of like being in music videos and like hamming it up that way. Um, they were they felt uncomfortable, like, you know, but Glenn Fry like loved it. Uh, and and like really ate it up but you know none of the other eagles some of whom especially randy meisner like put out a couple of great records in the early 80s um didn't really get the same amount of love from the music industry or the critics or mtv or anything like that mm-hmm. so hmm you know makes you wonder but anyways like i mean you could even go ugh, like uh i don't want to go too far but basically i just uh, real quick i'll just mention steve ross who like was the CEO of like Warner Communications and like was originally from Kinney, this mobbed up uh, like parking company in New Jersey. He eventually, you know, did this thing with uh, with Time where he merged in 1989. And of course, Time had been, you know, was the ultimate blue blood corporation that uh, was run by Henry Luce of Skull and Bones, who was friends with, you know, George Bush and all that. But critical to that huge merger which is like still with us today was a prominent lawyer uh that we've discussed before named arthur lyman who you might remember was the kind of uh hero muller of the iran contra hearings in the 80s but basically like Mm -hmm. failed to uh actually get anybody like actually punished for what they did and of course yeah. whose son was the director Doug Lyman who made American Made the kind of Hollywood version of the Barry Seal movie starring Tom Cruise a few years ago and you know of course I found I found a great article from Daniel Hopsicker who is uh, as the kind of resident expert of Barry Seal really hated that movie but you know he dug a little bit into Arthur Lyman because he's remembered as this like public interest lawyer and like legal scholar and you know a good liberal and blah 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 well he looked into it. it turns out that like 
his uh, Steve Ross's main lawyer at this mobbed up Warner company was uh, Arthur Lyman. And actually, Arthur Lyman was like instrumental in all kinds of business dealings they did throughout the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, but was particularly instrumental in convincing those old wasps over at time to like team up with this like mafia company. And so that a lot of that was going on at the same time that he was basically running around like pretending to uh, get to the truth behind Oliver North or anything like that. So that's really interesting that like, wow, okay, small world, like all these guys, you know, and, and people all kind of said like, oh yeah, Arthur Lyman did so many like borderline or not even borderline illegal things in terms of like advancing Steve Ross's interests and like Warner's interests in the corporate world. So maybe if we wonder like where where did the mafia go like after the 80s? I don't know. Maybe this is where some of them went was right into mm-hmm. corporate America. They just bought their way into, into the real game. Yeah, that makes but sense. But anyways, that, that, that's all just like an extensive um, tentacular uh, tangent from basically um, our, our main timeline here. But like keep all that in mind because like the business environment when Azov takes over and Geffen kind of goes away, it and then like their fame is like kind of steadily rising, it really starts to like shift around that time. And I guess it has, like, very uh, stressful, catastrophic consequences for the band, eventually. One of these nights One of these crazy old nights We're gonna find out pretty mama one more album after that which is like big which is one of these nights and it's the first one that like don felder's on for for the whole thing and it's like 
the last one that Bernie Ledden is on because he kind of starts to reach his breaking point. And I don't know, like we read a little bit about that in in Felder's book, but I don't know. It sounded like you were a little impressed with Bernie's approach to the rock and roll lifestyle as opposed to. Uh, yes, you know, I was. Like I said, you know, I definitely understand his attitude uh you know and it makes sense you know yeah uh the quote in my own reading uh stood out to me and you took a note on it as well you know where he you know met up with him years later and Mm -hmm. uh you know they're he's like how you doing man and he was like great he was like you know uh and it's like i saw in his eyes like that he was like telling the truth like you know he really was like doing well you know it wasn't just like Mm -hmm when you tell someone you're doing great, like, just so that they you don't, don't bring them down to them or whatever. Yeah. They don't worry about you. But, uh, he said like that suddenly he had like some kind of like flash of envy of him, you know, and realized mm-hmm. that like he, he escaped the know, hotel California. Own, exactly. Yeah. Like he took his yeah. own path and like, you know, mm-hmm. after all that, you know, you'd think like being kicked out basically, I mean, he did kind of choose to leave, but it would seem to be, like, a bad uh, turn of events to, like, have to leave the Eagles, you know, but mm-hmm. I'm trying to find his actual... Yeah, he says, uh, looking across at him, I was suddenly filled with envy. Bernie had escaped the treadmill the Eagles had become. He had stood mm-hmm. up for what he believed in and walked away from all the crap to do what he wanted. Run With Run C&W, he'd injected some of his unique humor into the country music scene and was clearly never going to take the industry too seriously again. If there was one thing I'd learned from Bernie, and there was so much, I mean, he really did, like, you know, pretty much put this guy in with the Eagles to begin with. Uh, yeah, you know, he did. So it's kind of awkward that, like, Don Felder stayed on after Bernie left. But it was that his kind of music originates in a very selfless place. There are no egos in bluegrass with come from Sunday revivals down by the river and a shared sense of fun and community spirit. I mean, I don't know if there's no egos in bluegrass, but like, but, you know, uh, the overall sentiment, like, uh, would you call that, yeah. would you, would you call that like that? That's pretty Hawk. Yeah, exactly. He was the most on Hawk, like member of <laughs> the Eagles, I think, you know, and he even said like, slam alaikum to them, uh, in leaving, you know, he said, I wish you peace. Oh, he did uh, say that, song, yeah, with a, hated, with a song you know. that, on this album, because we are there, yeah, a song written, with, co-written with Ronald Reagan's daughter, Patty Davis. Yeah, Which is right. another kind West of hilarious song. dynamic that yeah. was introduced that, that did right. contribute to Bernie leaving. He he got in a really tight relationship w- with the California governor, because he still was, I think, at this time, up to 74, with, yeah, Patty Davis, with basically Ronald Reagan's, like, hippie daughter, who lived with him in Topanga Canyon with right, all the other yeah. kind of Right, yeah. And, like, Nancy hippies. Reagan, like, disowned her because she was, like, living with him and, like, he, uh, outside of marriage, you know? <laughs> oh, and, like, yeah. he wore yeah. jeans, you know? Yeah, and, like, yeah. Uh, yeah big, uh, he looked like a kind of... He did look like a stereotypical hippie scum yeah. kind of a, mm-hmm. you know, kind of guy. Yeah, he and, was also, like, the first one to, like, stop doing drugs kind of like so aggressively you know and got yeah. into you know apparently according to don felder he had a nickname of like marty martian and mm-hmm. like eventually it came to signify that like he just his eyes were like so clear and bright like compared to everyone else in the eagles you know like v- watching like reading don felder's book and also like watching the documentary especially when you see like what happened to joe walsh like who we'll get into like yeah you know i was remembering like during the recent q a when they're like what's your hottest take that like gets the most pushback and like we said a couple of things but something that like i was kicking myself because what really i think like slipped my mind is like 
just don't do drugs <laughs> like you know like uh just don't like it's not like they're not good like you know i mean what the quran says is true like you know they have obviously some benefits but like they're greatly outweighed by like their harms like mm, uh you yeah, know so yeah. that idea i think is probably the idea that i have that is like the one that would be most pushed back against but I think that the, the story yeah. of the Eagles definitely testifies to the validity of, of that sentiment, you know? Oh, like, for sure, uh, for sure. They were the, yeah, they were the uh, vanguards of a few things, but they were definitely, I think, the vanguard of, like, what happens if you just never stop doing cocaine and just do more and more yeah. of it and just keep going? Because it was in that weird point of time. The, the thing with cocaine is very odd, and there's a few odd aspects of it that I feel like they demand some kind of further explanation because I've read this in other books before, but I thought they must be getting the numbers wrong. But then they mentioned it in Felder's book. He mentioned his first time coming into contact with cocaine, and I just wanted to like put it into context. Like Don said that drugs were a frequent feature for everyone on the road, and for the first time I came into contact with cocaine. It wasn't something I indulged in often because I couldn't afford it. A hundred dollars for a gram of blow was way out of my league. Moreover, when your body isn't used to it, a little bit of that stuff goes a long way. And so mm-hmm. I just like pulled up an inflation calculator because I read this in another book about like the 70s rock scene. And they mentioned something about like how expensive a gram of cocaine was in the 70s. And I, I put it in like what was $100 in 1972 when he was referring to it. That, that was like about $650 for a a gram of cocaine and I don't know maybe people don't know like kind of you know what uh, what's the going rate for like a gram of cocaine in 2021 but as far as I know it's it's under a hundred dollars like it a hundred like a hundred dollars would be like expensive I think for like a, a gram of cocaine so the fact that in the 70s all these people just have like unlimited access to cocaine but it was like almost $700 a gram like how could anybody afford like that level of addiction unless you were like a billionaire like that so it makes me wonder if how much of it were they getting for free were they getting it from their record label or Irving Azoff you know all those people have fixers yeah. and drug, the, drug well, supply well they were stuff. saying that like they arranged to have it at one point they were arranging to have it like on top of their amps like just have lines like lined up on top of their amps so that like yeah. they could go over during their concerts and be like I'm adjusting my knobs and just like snort a line of coke uh, yes. like you know uh <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you really see kind of how like um, kind of like the dynamic we talked about, the California ideology of like, uh, I don't know if the rebellious spirit of the 60s promised that like work would become play in the Eagles, like doing cocaine went from being like play to being like, like play becoming work because they really started using it more heavily to cope with the chronic fatigue of like both being on the road constantly and like doing shows every night and being shuttled around and really it didn't sound like particularly luxurious uh, conditions like they you know Irving Azoff like scheduled them so tightly they would just get like packed into a van or like a, a plane and just like shipped off to the next hotel and the next venue and then like immediately shipped off to the next one and on top of that like having to go back in the studio and be inspired that's what I think Glenn Fry said is he yeah, started like dabbling right. in cocaine because it would get him going on like an idea for mm-hmm. for songwriting stuff no, yeah. but then they all started like- doing it yeah, and Don Felder said something like, you know, I'm sure that it affected, like, it really, you know, I know it's not, it's not the same, like, uh, but it really reminded me, like, a lot of weed, like, experiences that I've had, like, in my own life with weed, you know, like, where it starts out, like, even what Don Felder said, where, like, a little bit goes a long way, like, at first, you just need a little bit of weed, 
and it's like mm-hmm. this you know you feel like you're having the best ideas in the world like regardless of whether you are you know mm-hmm. like yeah. uh like a lot of the effect is like whether there's like a creativity uh aid to it or not like you know you have this sort of euphoric feeling but then you know i think i forget who maybe it was uh what glenn frey said in the documentary but you know he was saying like eventually it just becomes like a dependency basically like in order to work Mm -hmm. in order to have ideas at all like you need this all of a sudden and like obviously cocaine like you know thankfully i've never been a a cocaine addict like a hundred love but like you know uh the the parallels like are very much like there i mean the weed that the eagles were smoking like you know uh probably was was so weak like the fucking synthesized like you know government weed that like uh (laughs) we're getting like you know uh today no no i think don uh, felder also said something insane about how like in the late 60s or early 70s you could buy like a you could buy like a like a half ounce of weed for like uh like five dollars or something like that was like a <laughs> yeah. dime bag was like a quarter ounce of weed or mm-hmm. something it was like what like so yeah, yeah it must have been really weak and they were just smoking like really big joints or something and uh you know maybe uh maybe we should go back i i want like the, you know i i think the market should uh cater to that but probably not because they're they want people to be psyoped by like 36 percent thc weed now um but like mm, where, where's yeah. the light option where it's like hey can i buy some like 70s weed that's just like mellow and doesn't completely like i mean i guess that's like cbd around? kind of like maybe that's yeah, like what that but, is but i don't know like yeah uh, anyways yeah like, no but i think yeah there's definitely also a I lot mean, of the way uh, they were working well, K- the way K- reno you know another great music artist uh, uh-huh. has always been very suspicious at the vanguard and suspicion of like you know he's like yeah the synthetic marijuana is like gonna destroy you you know like they know oh, but he only believes in so, like, like you know organic marijuana i don't know like if he believes in organic marijuana i'm not really sure like the last time i checked he was like actually like a like a, a preacher like a muslim preacher who like oh, gave okay, sermons okay. at like some church like in wherever he lives but wow. uh he definitely you know has singled out like the synthetic government marijuana for oh i think uh, he means like I hydroponic mean, like, like modern like like high thc weed like in general is, yeah maybe synthetic but, uh, yeah, or something i guess yeah yeah, okay. yeah. uh yeah, yeah i'm not sure if he GMO thinks weed. like you know uh black you know the weed you buy in the black market yeah exactly gmo weed i don't know i don't yeah. know what the fuck yeah. he's, he's getting at, well yeah yeah, yeah. The, uh, the other I'm thing that like suspicious. their work the other thing uh, their work process that like around cocaine reminded me a lot of is kind of like amphetamines that are prescribed today and how mm-hmm. i don't know if you've ever i don't know if you've ever experienced this like i i've certainly um had legal encounters for years uh with like add medications right. mm-hmm. and yeah. you know i think if you've ever known anybody or if you yourself have ever like kind of like uh turn that dial up a little too hard be- to just power through something like there's that initial kind of like oh yes like this is like the nitro boost that I needed. I'm so motivated. Oh, all my ideas are awesome. But like, if you keep pressing that button over and over again, then it turns into like Don Henley, like sitting over like the same, like symbol crash for like, like a week, just like playing it <laughs> over and over again. It's like, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. And they're just, like, that's what Don Felder basically described. They all get coked out in the studio and they would play whole takes that were like great or just fine. Or, you know, even had like good improvisation, but like they were so obsessive about like the most unimportant shit about like, Oh, like no no that echoes too much like that voice echoes too much we need to do it all again we need to do it all again and they like wasted tons of time just like on these yeah. like coked out rabbit holes of Things like, that, like it you needs couldn't to even be... like really hear yeah yeah uh, yeah like it sounded exactly the same
shamed everybody else, but like you couldn't. Yeah, you you actually lose a little more objectivity in the long run from uh, indulging the in that, taking that run. approach to uh, it. In the right. Long yeah. Run. Um, exactly. The, you get songs right. like Teenage yeah, Jail uh, that just sound like you're in hell. Run. Like. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but, but yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, no, I mean, well, basically, like vivans and stuff, like you know, is kind of like meth, like more or less. It's just like legal. It's very similar to like legal meth. Obviously, it's not like I mean, quite the same. I, I only like, quibble with that. Yeah. I, I'd say like if you had like methamphetamine pills, then yes, you'd be correct. But like the method of ingestion counts a lot. I think right. like okay, meth yeah. is, well, is okay. much more intense. Like it, it's even like snorting cocaine versus smoking crack. Like one is going to be kind of exponentially like hit. You're even freebasing cocaine. Yeah. It's going to hit you way harder. Just like popping an Oxycontin pill and like snorting it and shooting it are like three different levels. They're all bad, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. for the record. Um, But yeah, yeah, it's kind Uh, of like that a little bit where it's like molecularly, you're right. It's like not that. Maybe meth wouldn't be such a scourge if everyone just took meth pills. Like methamphetamine pills, uh, you know. Yeah, uh, for For certain disorders. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, if you're a Nazi Wehrmacht soldier in 1939. Yeah. Then you were getting it, right. prescribed meth uh, pills. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which, uh, I kind of scary. Yeah, but. I don't know. Like uh Vivance, like it kind of uh you know, I've been on Adderall, I've been on Vivance. Uh, I'm on mm-hmm. like Vivance, like forty milligrams right now. I feel like that's a little bit well, I feel like actually almost it's different where like uh now that I like take it more regularly. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, maybe it's in that phase of like, you know, uh, basically dependent on Vivance, you know, but sure, sure. I don't know. I feel like if anybody has like ADHD, like I do, but like at the same time, like, uh, you know, it definitely is something that like, you know, helps me to work. But again, like I am dependent upon it, uh, but I feel like it's a little bit different it, to me. But even though it does come from like big pharma in the same way, like and it's definitely sus. And I'm super glad that like I wasn't put on it as a kid. Uh, me and too. That, like, my me parents too. Fought against it, Yikes. even though like people mm-hmm. suggested it. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, same. I got I got it pushed on me when I was yeah like in middle school. Like, yeah. come on, don't you want to take it? Come on, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but like yeah. My, my yeah my mom thought it was sus. I thought it was sus, and uh, I'm glad. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like you know it's uh yeah like um. Even, mean, Felder said, even Felder said, even Felder said, like when, a disorder, like, you know, well, yeah, yeah, no, we had to like, like keep up with like this fucking, you know, like I have to write like a fucking like 300 page dissertation, like, you know, in, in 1780, I had to write like an eight page dissertation or whatever. Like no one had Vivance then because they didn't have to fucking write 300 page dissertation. The guy who came up with the idea of game theory, like his dissertation was like 10 pages long or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, uh, yeah John, uh, John Nash. Like, oh, beautiful. Me off so much. Yeah, uh, even Don Felder, I don't know if you saw this, but he made a point near the end where his kid was having some behavioral issues like this probably was in like the 90s or something and they took him to a psychologist and they they offered they said he had ADD and like prescribed wanted to prescribe him Ritalin and he like freaked out because he's like I remember what speed was like on the road and like the idea of like giving it to my 10 year old was like horrifying but then I decided yeah. to do it but you know it just shows that it's like an interesting uh like that was a generational weird like shift for him it was like what you want to get my yeah. 10 year old speed uh like I used yeah, to play speed well, and we were doing really like five shows yeah exactly like, yeah okay mm-hmm. um yeah he he also said about uh just because it's in front of me right now um that one time he ran into like David Crosby I think he was touring with like Crosby like Stills and Nash and he 
like he said he was the first person he'd ever met he used excessive amounts of cocaine and the energy that came off him in consequence was paranoid tense and fearful i remember walking down the hallway in a motel we were staying in one night and seeing david's door open so i strolled in we were working together after all and i'd hoped we were friends hey how you doing i said thinking i could walk into his life the same way i could with graham on his bed the suitcase was lying open and inside was a bag of cocaine david was really high and the look on his face was one of paranoia he'd been caught red-handed there was no telling what he might do stiffening i said oh uh, i forgot something i gotta go i only worked with him for a few months but there was always a distance between us and i never stopped being slightly wary <laughs> so it's like <laughs> sounds fun uh you know after a while yeah the fun gets sucked out of it and but it's interesting to think about how they were really like pressured into the drug use as a result of the hectic nature of their schedule and work life their work life balance if you will i mean i i guess we're being extremely narcophobic right now but if you think about it like that was a deal they made but um i think felder i think is kind of the most eloquent and maybe like honest about his ambivalence about kind of going all the way with that but still kind of feeling he makes a good point which is that if you're up late recording in the studio and you want to go a little further and like one person wants to do cocaine that doesn't work because then in like two in like an hour or two like everyone's going to be sleepy yeah, and bitter and, and mad and they're just like jumping around like so it's like, like yeah yeah like everybody has to be on the same page yeah, and in terms of, like, being in a group, you know, like, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it just exacerbates all the tensions even more, where it causes, mm-hmm. like, so much, you know, where it just, uh, just pours oil on the fire of, like, the acrimony, like, between the different members, you know, because, like, you get, like, paranoid. I mean, coke is, like, really, like, a whole other level, but, you know, you mm-hmm. can definitely... I, be, I definitely felt, like, the parallels, like, with other shit, and, like, I, you know, even... I mean, this is kind of unique to their situation, but it speaks to kind of, like, it was, like, a system that was sustaining these these habits. Is like, you know, Joe Walsh, like, just sat, like, you know, in the documentary that I watched, History of the Eagles, on your recommendation, mm-hmm. a, four, a four-hour documentary about the <laughs> Eagles. You, like, you could hear clips of him, and he just sounds like shit, you know? Like, he's, like, slurring his words. Like, he was just, had an alcohol problem and, like, a cocaine yeah. problem at that point. Yeah, huge cocaine And problem. he's just a complete fucking mess and like, I don't you know, know man e- you know you got some firecrackers you just shove them up your butt and light them up you know yeah exactly <laughs> just like saying things like that in response to like totally irrelevant question you know like and yeah and no one said anything to him they all just went everybody along, was like, like encouraging yeah. him like in yeah. like irving azoff bought him an electric chainsaw so it would be quiet and he could like sneak up on people and chainsaw through the door like the walls in their hotels and shit like that uh he was really i, I don't know what he was kind of going through but yeah we're like about to joe walsh but wait real quick we should talk about you know bernie leaving after they make like one of these nights which has a lot of dope songs on it Lion Eyes is a pretty uh, dark anthem about Hollywood, I would say. You know, Mm -hmm. did you listen to Lion Eyes? Yes, I did listen to Lion Eyes. Mm -hmm. I think they won, like, Song of the Year at the Grammys for that one. Uh, And that was, like, kind of their last, like, real country-ish kind of track. And it's uh it's pretty great they had the title track one of these nights which i've heard some people describe as almost like kind of like country disco 
kind of interesting mm-hmm. kind of a haunted yeah there track, was that weird but... thing that was a little bit later but on in the long run where they like you know they're like we hate disco like and they made that song about the disco strangler strangler a uh, uh, terrible song big, terrible song uh they're pretty big misogynists i have to say you know not to uh cancel the eagles for their misogyny but uh you know it's understandable that they were like you know back up that last album i will and then they were like you know uh we just let's be in a band together guys Came i don't know if it, i don't know if it was like stuff. that i I don't, I don't know if it, I don't know if them wanting to break off on their own as a result of like misogyny related to Linda Ronstadt because they were like super tight with Linda Ronstadt. Yeah, and she true. was like she totally do down with them, mm-hmm. and she like yeah. she made them kind of like I mean she so they were always like and and also you know like talk about you know feminist heroes but like Don Henley starting in like the mid to late seventies like dated Stevie Nicks kind of on and off for two years and yeah, they eventually right. did a duet together yeah, but the, the love them and Lyrum era of Don yes Henley the love them and Lyrum. but yeah you're right no a lot of that together. stuff with like gr- i mean groupie culture there's no way to look at it i think today as anything else in this like bizarre like dionysian frenzied like uh, cult of like problematic bro gods like pulled with guitars yeah. like i it's hard to really i'm sure there's still groupies and stuff today and that's still kind of like a phenomenon. I mean, a lot of it is probably also like blended with social media and stuff. But I, I mean, I I take them kind of at their word of like the dynamics, especially the way Felder describes it, because he was married and initially like really didn't right, yeah, want to cheat on like, his wife. You know- he is uh, tortured over like you know the temptations that like he was seduced by and like the hollow experiences uh mm-hmm. he had, right? yeah 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 mm-hmm. i i appreciated uh, his because like like don and glenn still kind of talk about it with like a smirk as like yeah we had fun you know and it's like yeah like i don't know like yeah well I it's mean, just like, and, like there's their third on that, like, parties I mean, and stuff again it shows how like those two guys were like on a similar wavelength where they were like single and like not capable of having like any kind of you know, while at the same time, like, writing songs about how, like, they're prisoners of their own freedom and everything, like, they weren't yeah. <laughs> able to, like, have any kind of, like, real relationship with anyone, and, like, mm-hmm. just kind of, like, you know, obviously, like, he shouldn't be exonerated for, like, what he did, and, like, he felt guilt about it rightly, but, uh, you know, naturally for, like, betraying his, like, marriage vows and everything, but, yeah. like, you know, he was in a situation where everyone around him was acting this way like throwing you know so like, yeah uh, and you really hate to see it but randy meisner who i believe married his like high school sweetheart when he was like 16 because he was also mm-hmm. a very poor son of like sharecroppers from nebraska yeah, he just like disregarded I, the fact that he was married completely yeah he just decided to live like a double life and then even though he would go back to nebraska like in between tours and stuff but that was a little because otherwise like randy is just like he's really like the, the sweetheart of the group compared to at least these other guys like you really feel like oh like randy was like the sensitive one and like but he, he was getting sucked into it too it was really hard yeah, to uh, basically I mean, avoid. You know, they're all guilty and, like, complicit, and it doesn't, like, exonerate them, but it is, like, a twisted, sick, like, culture and system. You can't exonerate that either. Especially Don Henley and Glenn Frey were really sucked into it and were really just like, mm-hmm. I must be a rocker. Like, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know. That's why, you know, I respect Bernie, because he, like, had the sense to get out. You know, he did date ronald reagan's daughter but she seemed like pretty chill compared to the other reagans you know they did this own her uh yeah again relative to the other eagles you know and he even you know don felder just tell a story about one time he was like tapping some cocaine out of a vial or something and he accidentally tapped out like too much and Mm -hmm. he was like well i can't put it back might as well snort it all and bernie was (laughs) like 
hey man like watch out like that will fucking destroy your life yeah you, you gotta know? be careful uh, with that shit man Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, he was like, he was doing a lot of surfing and yoga, and he was like, right, he had yeah. become a vegetarian and was like eating healthy. And yeah, like, the documentary like, kind of like, yeah. you know, made him like, cause uh, they were like doing all this cool stuff on their new album. And yeah. uh, they're like, hey, man, like, what do you think? You know, and he was like, I think I'm going surfing. And, and then he really uh, left for three days. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, how dare he just reply to say he's going surfing? It's like, well, that's you know. true. That's true. They did cast him into just like he's a little bit of like a angry, bitter kind of guy who just couldn't stand that like they weren't. Yeah. Doing I mean, I heard different stuff anymore. The documentary made it seem like Glenn Frey was just amped up about like all the excitement of being in the Eagles, and that's why he got <laughs> beer poured in his head. But, like, the Don Felder account and, like, other accounts of the event are that, like, he was, like, attacking Bernie and saying, like, this guy's a problem. Like, he's a like <laughs> yeah. Like, screaming at him before, like, kind of provoking him to do it. No, no, exactly, uh, so. exactly. And it finally, like, exploded. And, like, yeah. It, yeah, he was, like, giving him shit and, like, really, like, disrespecting him in front of everybody. And he just walked up and, like, poured the beer, poured his, his long neck bud all over his face and said, you need to chill out, man. Yeah, <laughs> and, like, of course, They almost got into, like, right. they came to blows almost, and they had to be, like, separated. And then right. he was pretty much done with it. Yeah, Though, that was I listened the to more, yeah. I listened to a more recent interview with him, and, and, like, he said that even when, like, Don Felder joined on, like, their third album, he felt like it was getting away from him and that he might have to quit this band at some point in the future. And Don Felder also said he, like, it was palpable yeah, how much, like, right, like yeah, he felt he like he always... walked in and this band was about to break up in, like, 1973. Right. Like, they yeah, were totally right. unstable, mm-hmm. and Don and Glenn were already kind of starting to assert their greater influence which like the other two original guys were like hey what the fuck like it was supposed to be you know all for one and one for all man and they Mm -hmm. didn't want to do it that way so he like stormed out and then he quit and so they were left like minus their original their number one country dude and back yeah. to four. Then, like, the dialectic reared its head again. Because, like, you know, they had they had a couple, like, hit things. They also had Take It to the Limit, which would also be, like, right. a very important song for their thing, which was, like, Randy Meisner's, like, first really big hit, where mm-hmm. he... Great song, honestly. I think so. Do you, you think mm-hmm. so? You vibe it's with Take okay. It to the Limit? It's one of the... Like, I, 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 like, you know, I get it kind of. Like, I get it a little <laughs> bit more than I did, maybe. I still don't quite uh-huh. understand, like, why you love the Eagles so much. Like, I probably never will, but it's it's okay. <laughs> like, you know, it's, I, it's, it's not I think bad. It's, a, it's a good battle. And also, uh, just, like, Randy, Randy yeah. Meisner's you know, voice. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, course, his falsetto, you know, he does have a great falsetto. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, That's you really have to listen to, sure. like, the live version where he hits the high note at the mm-hmm. end, which became, like, a huge, like, point of, like, contention, like, later on uh to like an extreme degree right but, yeah because he so wouldn't like, hit the high note because he got bored i mean which you know is like really like a thing like having to do that like every single day is perform the same hard. songs like i've always wondered how people do that like you know it's mm-hmm. kind of like being in one of these broadway shows like phantom of the opera or like wicked you know or something like that yeah. where like all these like drooling like you know fleshy faced tourists like come in and like you have do to the do the high note do the high note every day yeah exactly and it's just like yeah <laughs> Yeah. Do it again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. yeah. Do it again. I monkey. used to. Uh, yeah, I used yeah. to work at a theater where they had Audra McDonald and Porgy and Bess, and my boss at the time. Like I remember him like complaining about how like 
someone in the ensemble wouldn't like hit the high note or like do this like riff they really liked you know like every performance or whatever it's like shut the fuck you know like so i know you like yeah i mean i understand like uh you know and Again, the documentary, they're like, I get it. You know, Randy, I understand. You know, I don't like singing these songs every single night, but the fans have waited their whole lives. You know, well, like, like uh, oh my God, as, as if singing Peaceful, Easy Feeling is like as difficult as singing Take It to the Limit. Like, shut up, Glenn. Yeah. You know, like his, those like songs, he mid, sings like, in like a so mid range. Like cocaine like, and alcohol, which is like not healthy. Like, you know, that's yeah. not good for you as like a performer like or like basically like that type of performing is like a physical like athletic thing almost you know like you have to your body is your instrument you know in a way so like when you're like Mm -hmm. abusing your body so heavily with all these different fucking substances like like it's hard it's hard as hell you know it really is it is and unfortunately uh, like right after i think felder describes like after bernie left that's when they kind of started like picking on randy glenn fry always felt like somebody was a problem and like his laser focus Mm -hmm. would go at first it was on bernie like bernie's a problem and then he left and then it was like oh randy's being a problem yeah it's just like the um, imaginary like it's really like a shaitanic like situation because like it's not it's completely irrational and it really is like you know oh the hi-hat is like echoing or whatever you know like uh Mm -hmm. there's Mm -hmm. always gonna be like an echoing hi-hat like uh, there's oh you know you're never gonna really make the echo go away so like you think you solve the problem like with the larger group but like you know it's oh they're like until you are yourself like alone and a prisoner like of your own freedom you know uh Mm -hmm. it's always gonna happen but yeah yeah, but the uh, the vibes start to get darker they got a lot of attention for this album but like the drugs are like kicking up one little funny like anecdote felder said was uh you know because he would end up like drinking doing coke like smoking weed and then have to drive back to like topanga canyon like at three in the morning which i guess was like dangerous and uh so he said he started sleeping over the studio the first night i stayed i can't even remember going to bed but when i woke up in the morning i thought i'd died and gone to hell the particular room i'd crashed in had an s and theme with a leather headboard whipped chains and a cage hanging from the ceiling i stared up at it all blinking hard what on earth did i take last night i asked myself so like that that was like the cool film a studio that i think was set up by geffen that had like an s m room in it and just like That's sounded so totally fun. grody and yeah. disgusting and, and bizarre mm-hmm. you know but then okay so they're getting attention in september 1975 they got on the cover of rolling stone uh felder said there was a front page photograph of us all looking cool on a yacht in chicago wearing aviator sunglasses and an article raving about how great we were with typical media perversity however in the back of the same issue there was a formal record review panning our new album for some critics we were ballad heavy and theatrically boring we didn't have fireworks or makeup like kiss whose album alive had sparked kiss mania fans could buy everything from kiss makeup to kiss endorsed pinball machines we didn't leap around on stage and smash guitars like the who or dress up in outrageous costumes like elton john the critics were missing the point the eagles were always about songwriting and song power reaching people and touching their hearts with words and music that meant something we wanted our songs to endure compare any eagles verses to the repetitive head-banging lyrics by some of these quote rock opera bands we didn't need gimmicks nor did we need to sell lunch boxes with our faces on them so it's like he's saying that like we were like you yeah, know a, a winslow leech not yeah. like a beef basically uh 
you know, yeah. but like, but Swan, who actually, you know, Irving Ozoff, by the way, was like four foot eleven, so he even has that in common with Swan from Phantom of the Paradise. Right, yes. But it seems mm-hmm. like he really was opening up that suitcase and going, "Time for breakfast," you know, <laughs> yeah, like, here's yeah. more drugs, right. and <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah just, uh, uh-huh. So after after that Rolling Stone thing where they felt like they got burned, uh, they instituted a new policy where interviews were kept to a right. bare minimum or strictly controlled a strict by Irving Don policy. Yeah, you can definitely mm-hmm. see the uh, total. Totalitarian, uh, authoritarian Stalinism of <laughs> yeah. the Eagles coming out uh, in this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And just because we mentioned uh, Meyer Lansky earlier, just want to throw this in. Around this time, when they were doing an American tour for one of these nights, they had a week off. So they decided to fly to Nassau in the Bahamas and get some rest. And like my radar just started like shooting off. In the documentary, when they mentioned we went down to the Bahamas, I was like, <gasps> where in the Bahamas? Because you know what I'm thinking, yeah, right? right? And guess mm-hmm. what? Yeah. Like, Felder confirmed it. We've been flying around and dashing here and there in rental cars. We were exhausted. It made sense to stay out on the road rather than fly home, unpack, and repack. So we chartered a Learjet out of North Carolina and slipped down to a place in the Caribbean called Paradise Island. Hey, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, what better cool. place for Irving Azoff of Warner Communications to take them than Meyer Lansky's casino? <laughs> Interesting. Right. And I guess they almost got caught with drugs by the customs. And right. actually, Right, Felder yeah. Felder says that when we when we arrived at NASA's airport, customs officials greeted us with some suspicion, um, but then they were like were let through. And in the documentary, they say Irving Azoff, like they were about to like catch Glenn with like a bunch of weed and pills and stuff. And they, like, spilled pills all over the plane, on the floor, and yeah. it was, like, a total mess. And then Irving Isolf, like, went and had a word with one of the customs people, and then they were just let through. Right. So, like, mm, got a lot of juice on that island, like, on Paradise Island, I yeah. suppose. So, you right. know, that was, that's just an interesting data point. Uh, just, like, Candy Jones and uh, Donald Trump and all these other people just hovering around uh, Paradise yeah. Island. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Well, um, that, yeah, but they so far have not had to kiss that island goodbye uh despite calling it paradise uh so yeah no they haven't had (laughs) you're right uh they build up a bunch of ugly casinos and uh satanic mobsters bottom um Mm -hmm. not really satanic but you know what i mean they went on this tour and then i i think it i forget i think it was like during the the one of these nights tour that bernie was like fuck this and he quit so they needed somebody else so they went to somebody that Irving Azoff already represented, which was Joe Walsh, and they decided to plug him in and make him an eagle. And so then mm-hmm. the Hotel California lineup was secure at that point. And so you had Randy Meisner, Don Don Felder, Don Henley, Glenn Fry, and Joe Walsh, who already had like a solo career and was known. And I guess like they just basically doubled down on like we need more rock. And mm-hmm. I do think it I think it's a slight loss of Bernie's voice because he had such a smooth, yeah. like, harmony uh, contribution right. to their vocals. And mm-hmm. as I impersonated Joe Walshman, yeah, he's very like this, man. And he even kind of yeah. sings like that, you know? Yeah. You know, and like he's very reedy, kind of nasally voice. Uh, I yes. think he did pretty well, like, uh, you know, singing Seven Bridges Road and stuff. Like, I think it worked. And he was also, like, a really amazing guitarist and could also play keyboard and all these other things like he worked and then i guess like you know you could kind of debate whether or not this is really the supreme form of the eagles uh the hotel california lineup i would say yes or the one right before it because i kind of like bernie more but Mm -hmm. you know regardless they were primed to rock after this they were 
they were ready to rock. Um, uh, and they were in know, the fast lane. Yeah, they were. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the story about how they came up with like the story, the lyrics to that song is yeah the most archetypal right. like boomer like, story. yeah <laughs> it's, the, it's the most um, archetypal glenn fry story probably ever uh mm-hmm, they were yeah. what going to an eagles they were going to an eagles poker game and he was riding there in a red corvette driven by his drug dealer <laughs> and they had they were holding big time and he got into the far left lane on the freeway and started going like 95 miles per hour with a bunch of drugs and Glenn Fry looked at yeah. him and said, hey, man, what are you doing? And the guy looked at him and, like, grinned devilishly and said, life in the fast lane. <laughs> and then <laughs> Glenn Fry was like, immediately, I thought, that's a song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the song title. Yeah, exactly. Uh, like, hilarious. Yeah. Um, um, he, yeah, he was riding on the field with a drug dealer known as The Count. Uh, Dracula? Uh, talk about, yeah, a little bit of Dracularity going on here. Scary. Uh, slow down. What do you mean? <laughs> slow for the fast lane. Yeah, Life like, in the uh, fast lane. my girlfriend, like, during, uh, you know, I made her watch the four-hour Eagles documentary, which, like, she was not 100% happy about, because, like, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of just, like, the same songs playing over and over, like, in this concert footage and everything, and, like, there's this one, the like, kind half. of, like, yeah. well, there's a, there's a Hotel California-esque moment where like it ends basically like the credits roll and uh-huh. you know then like it just keeps going and she was like the credits rolled the credits <laughs> rolled you know and i was like you know you can check it anytime you like but you can never leave yep, you can never like, leave uh, but, well yeah, they had to, they had to re- out, they like, had to put up that title card that said like eagles are don henley glenn fry joe walsh and timothy schmidt and not don felder uh you know before yeah. you went into part two just to really emphasize that uh, who is not an eagle? Right. Yeah. Um, a lot yes, of weird exactly. stuff like that in the documentary. Yeah. She pointed out that like a lot of their songs, like their song titles, are just like kind of like uh, sayings or like cliches. Like uh, take it to the limit, life in the fast lane, take it easy. Lionized. Like yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I mean you know, a, yeah, a yeah, lot sure, of that's, sure. that's common. That's common to many musicians. Common to many musicians. You know. Uh, Taylor Swift, the Eagles of today, you know, uh, directly exactly. in their lineage, uh, referencing, you know, Out of the Woods. Not a very oh, good course. song. Uh, a shit uh, song. Course, but yeah. uh, Champagne Problems, pretty good song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Champagne you know, Problems, exactly. You know, but the, you know, Last Resort, obviously. Um, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they're just being literary. Right. It's okay. But Last Resort's um, interesting because, yeah, there's like a kind of interesting double entendre uh, in the song. Last oh, Resort, yeah, you're right, because you it's a resort. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah right. there is, there is. Yeah. up your eyes take the devil from your mind he's been holding on to you and you're so hard to find the wind outside is cold restless feeling in my soul tempting me to get away but there's no place a man can 